I'm really excited about uh, today's topic. And actually, before we get directly into the Puritans, there was a little bit of a, a question I wanted to think about. Some of you know this already. I actually, when I graduated from college, I graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in History and Youth Ministry. It was a really strange combination. None of the other youth men majors did that. Uh, because years ago, I thought I was going to become a history teacher. I've always been fascinated by history. Before college, I went to Bible school in England, uh, not because I had a great desire at that time to study the Bible. <laughs> I was fascinated by history, and my parents were like, hey, we'll, uh, we'll pay for you to go to Bible school in England if you'll go to Bible school. And I said, oh, okay. The, um, and it's been kind of fun over the course of this summer as we've looked at different places and different topics, I part of during my time over there, I actually uh, was one of those college students living out of a backpack, just riding the train all over throughout Europe. And kind of as we're talking about these different places, I'm going, oh, I was there, I was there. My week's coming up to tell everyone. Uh, it was really exciting to me, but there's a part of me that, that really wants to get into uh, why, do we, why is studying the Reformation important? Uh, why do we study it? And I had a few different thoughts uh, because the way the way I really like to approach history is, you know, why is this important? How does this relate to us today? How can we learn from it? And uh, there, George Santayana, I'm just going to say the name confidently because I'm not sure, once uh, famously said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, that there's this idea that we can learn from history because there's almost kind of a cyclical nature to history that things repeat themselves, that humans are the same broken, fallen human beings that we've been for thousands of years. That's why we need Christ. Uh, Deuteronomy 32.7 says, Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father, and he will tell you your elders, and they will explain to you that there's this biblical value. We need to be looking at the past. We need to be looking at what has gone before. Even as we look uh, through the Old Testament in particular, everywhere the Jewish people went as they were kind of traveling and getting to that someday promised land, and even once they were there, what was God constantly telling them to do? Set up monuments, set up reminders, because we forget. And so these accomplishments or these times that they had had through God set up a monument so that you remember it. Because within a generation or two, if we haven't documented it, we forget. You know, I, I tell my kids stuff. They listen 5% of the time. The rest of it's going to be lost. The, uh, and, uh, so, uh, and then I kind of, this question of is history cyclical? Now, I read a book uh, five or eight years ago, and then uh, it really started to intrigue me as I was going through seminary. Um, Phyllis Sickle, she's not the first to propose this. Uh, she was the first one that I read that talked about. But I love this book, The Great Emergence, because uh, she contends, and a lot of other historians and scholars contend, that even within Christianity, within faith, there is this cyclical nature to history. And so uh, she would say that about every 500s, Five, about approximately, like it's not on the dime, but about approximately every 500 years, there's a major shakeup to the dominant institutionalized religious groups. That, that new information or something happens, development, whatever goes on, it shakes it up and changes things completely. 
And that going forward from that point, the, what was the dominant religious institutions or uh, dominant thought or dominant approach or dominant group has lost a lot of its authority and power. There's a new group that emerges from it. The previous one tends to remain, but just not with the same status that once had. And so she kind of maps out in this book, which I thought was super fascinating, that, uh, you know, 500, exactly what we're studying about, right? That the Reformation happened. About 500 years before that, in 1051 AD, was the Great Schism. We could do entire lessons on each of these, so we are not going to. I'm just going to fly through them. Uh, about 500 years before that were several significant things. The Council of Chalcedon, the fall of Rome, Gregory the Great. 500 years before that, Christ arrived. And uh, as she was talking about some of these findings, she was talking to a Jewish scholar, and he said, well, actually, uh, it goes before Christ as well, because they were kind of looking at it and going, wow, every 500 years with Christ, there's been some major development in faith. And uh, so she said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, about 500 years before Christ was the Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. It was a colossal event in Jewish history that dramatically changed uh, their faith and their life. A thousand years before Christ was the Davidic kingdom, also a huge transforming moment in Jewish culture. Uh, Even as you look at the Old Testament, A lot of our writings center around these major dates. We have a lot of collections of writings from around the Babylonian captivity. We have a lot from around the time of David. Around 1500 B.C. was approximately when the Exodus happened. When Moses is uh, attributed with writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy, that it was a really dramatic time then. And then, uh, I didn't put it on here, But approximately 2100 B.C. is when Abraham lived and would have been called out and promised this beginning nation, right? So you begin to get a sense of, wow, every every 500 years there does seem to be something major, which I think prompts the question, we're about 500 years after the Reformation. What's What's going on today? And so that was where I had a, a few questions, I think, of why this summer series is so valuable. Uh, yeah, I wrote all that. We just talked about that. But he did mention that there were typically three results from these shakeups. A more vital form of Christianity emerges. You know, out of the Reformation came a more vital Protestant faith. Around that same time, you know, God's timing is incredible. It wasn't random that it happened when it happened, because why? As we've kind of talked about this summer, you have the invention of the printing press. Suddenly things are able to be reproduced and mass distributed in a way that hasn't happened before. You have a higher degree of literacy. You know, that uh, we heard earlier in the summer that during uh, the centuries before that, only something like 3% of the population had been literate. Well, it didn't matter that there was a printing press if nobody could read it. Right, But around that same time, 500 years ago, is when they got a more accurate Greek translation of the Bible. They were able to start translating the scriptures more effectively, that more people had access to read the word directly than had ever happened before. So a more vital form of Christianity emerges. The previous dominant form is reconstituted into a more pure and less ossified expression of its former self. Super fancy talk for... What was the dominant form 
tends to change and grow and adapt as well. And as much as we've been focusing on the Protestants, the reality is the Catholic Church did make some significant changes during this time period, and certainly in the centuries since, in response to losing people to Protestantism. When established Christianity has been broken open, faith has spread dramatically into new geographic and demographic areas. There's kind of a, a surge in each of these time periods uh, in pursuing Christ. So, for us, I wonder, as I think about this, and go, man, so if the pattern is suggesting that we're probably in the midst of a time period where if this pattern continues, approximately, it doesn't schedule to the date, but we're kind of due, or we're perhaps in the middle of one, typically it's not recognized until a century or two after, right? We, We don't get to figure it all out, right? Well, this is where it's all going. Um, but are we open to God's timing versus our timing? That uh, I, I think sometimes we get impatient. We want things. We want it now, um, especially in American culture. Uh, it's very strange to me where I've lived about five years of my life in third world countries and other countries, and then most of it here, and just kind of the difference in expectations and when we want things and, and how quickly we want it. And and there's even kind of an expectation sometimes that we should, if we pray for something, if we desire something, if we want to grow, if we want to change, it should be able to just happen immediately. I remember when I was in college once, I was struggling with something. I was part of a group with some other college students, and, and we were taking prayer requests. And I said, you know, I'm really struggling with this one area of my life. If you could pray for me on that, I'd appreciate it. So they all prayed for me. And the next week we got together, and uh, they said prayer requests, and... I said, yeah, I'd still like prayer for that area. And one of the other people in the group said, but didn't, didn't we pray for that last week? I was like, yeah, it's still an issue. <laughs> like, it's a little better, but it's not done. We expect things immediately, but we follow a God who promised a Messiah to Adam and Eve and then provided that Messiah 4,000 years later. Right? We, we, promise, we follow a God who... Uh, promised Abraham a nation and then waited a long time to give him a child. And then that child grew up, got married, and spent 20 years trying to have children before he had his only two sons. You know, that, that our timing isn't always God's timing. And so uh, when I think about that, because initially I go, why would God be having these surges and changes in the church every 500 years? I go, well, you start to look at Scripture and go, man, it's, God's actions tend to span over centuries or thousands of years as he gradually enacts his plan and moves. So are we open to that timing? Are we too rooted in our traditions and understandings? You know, will history look back at us during a time of upheaval or new information as God is working in the church or we're changing things, will history look back at us and go, those are the ones that were locking down on their traditions they already had and willing to die on that hill, or were they the ones that were open to the movement of what God was doing and and trusting that even though it made them uncomfortable, something uh, better is going to come through this? What roles do confidence, humility play? Uh, well, this could turn into a whole other topic, right? You know, how confident are we in what we know, or are we humble enough 
to be open to God moving us. And as we study the Reformation, are we simply looking at history? Are we seeing applications for today? Because I, I wonder, we are in a time, never before, have so many people had the level of education that we do. Right? As a world, as a culture, we take things for granted. We look back at the past and go, how could they treat women that way? How could, how could there have been a time where women were not allowed to vote? How could there have been a time where people used scriptures to advocate owning other people? That, uh, we, we look back and we wonder at that, but, but we live in a time with far greater freedom, far greater education just in general, uh, that uh, far greater access to information, and combined with that, the scholarly community is, is making light years of progress. That was a horrible way to phrase that. Incredible progress in learning and understanding ancient languages and ancient cultures. And there's things about the Bible that they're beginning to understand in new and exciting ways. Uh, new and exciting insights. And so for me, I kind of wonder, is the change up that we're in now that there's just an incredible new level of access to information and understanding and education, and how does that shape and affect the church? That, that as we respond to a culture that is kind of turning in its approval and acceptance and cultural traditions of religion, how do we react? So there's a lot of possibilities, but, but uh, I think I speculate that it has a lot to do with education and our access to information and how that changes some of our traditions and beliefs and attitudes, but it's a whole other, whole other road we could go down. So on that note, I just felt like I had to share that because that's what I get excited about in history and thinking about it and wondering about the Reformation. So uh, as we look at this, there is a strong possibility that we have similar changes going on today in the same way that the people 500 years ago had no idea where all of this was heading. We're going to talk about the Puritans, specifically the New England Puritans. Uh, but before we get to New England, just briefly, I want to touch on Puritans in general, right? That they originated in England. Uh, and this was a big deal to them because the Puritans did not see themselves as separatists. The separatists disagreed with the Church of England, broke with it completely. The Puritans some of them began meeting outside of the Church of England, but they still viewed themselves as a part of it. Others of them were trying to uh, pursue change and reformation within the church. They loved the Church of England, but they weren't happy with some of the things that uh, Dr. Hard tackled last week, right? That they were unhappy with the changes in government. It was very questionable to have the king or the queen be the head of the church, you know, there was a little bit of a pushback on Catholicism, but even within the Church of England, it kept bouncing back and forth depending on the monarch. Um, so they weren't separatists, per se. Uh, they weren't Donatists, which is something they got accused of a lot. Uh, their name, Puritan, came from that they wanted to purify the church. They wanted to see the church be the most pure uh, pursuit of God that it could be. You know, in lifestyle, in, in, in uh, pursuit of truth, they, they were frustrated uh, with the level of uneducated uh, leaders in so many of the churches. How, uh, if, if you believed, which they did, that the primary source of learning and growth happened through the sermon, through the message on the, from the pastor, 
It was a big deal to them that so many of the religious leaders had no formal training or no real background in the Scripture to be doing that. So, so they were frustrated. They wanted to purify the church. Uh, the Donatists believed that it was possible to have a perfect church, that you could achieve kind of this sinless state with a perfect church, with a perfect group of believers. And the Puritans rejected that. But they did want to get as close to it as they could. It was this weird mix of, we're going to go after it. We can't get it, but we're going to go after it. And we're not going to be happy until we get it, but we can't get it. <laughs> Feels like arguments between my kids sometimes. The, uh, uh, they're the roots of what we now know of as the congregational churches and Presbyterian churches. They were seeking to purify the Anglican church. Some were within, some from without. I already said that. Uh, they were looking for a greater purity of worship and doctrine. Uh, they wanted greater individual piety as well as corporate piety. It really frustrated them that the British church, the Church of England, uh, as a state church, everyone was automatically a member of it. And it frustrated them that just everybody was automatically a member of its church. It frustrated them that... Uh, Church discipline really didn't happen. You had to be really, really blatantly going against Scripture uh, to be excommunicated. And even then, it probably wasn't going to happen. So they were frustrated by some of the... uh, They wanted the church as a whole to have a better reputation. Oh, that's the name of the painting. Which brings us to the New England uh, Puritans. Because as all this is going on, this new world has been discovered, there's an opportunity. And and initially, uh, the Puritans, the initial groups that traveled over to the new world to found these colonies and start, weren't necessarily fleeing. It it was an opportunity to reach the natives uh, for God. It was an opportunity to... um, Uh, They still viewed themselves as a part of the Church of England, but it was an opportunity to start local congregations that pursued this pure ideal in a way they couldn't do. Now, later, as the monarchy changed over uh, and reverted back to a uh, Catholicism-based monarchy, we did see more Puritans fleeing from England to the New World because of religious persecution. But, but there were three things I kind of wanted to look at today. Depending on, you know, as I look at the clock, I'm either really optimistic or, or I won't follow my normal patterns of long-windedness. Uh, there were three things I kind of want to touch on because there's so much we could look at in New England Puritans, right? And, and we know this because uh, we're kind of just below New So we hear about it even more than maybe other parts of the country. Uh, but I, I want to look at missions and the city on the hill, uh, that um, this underlying value of going after missions and their impact on missions long-term. Uh, that I think we can make a case that the New England Puritans actually uh, influenced some of the great missionary endeavors that happened in later centuries. Uh, Membership, church membership, and the halfway covenant 
And then passion gone too far, the Salem witch trials, kind of one of their more infamous moments. And in between those three things are a ton of other things we could talk about and don't have time for. So, <laughs> uh, the first group to come over came over on the Mayflower in 1620. It was 102 passengers. There were approximately 30 crew. They departed in September and arrived in December, which I, I, took, a, I took a ferry when, when I was backpacking through Europe. And, and for perspective, you know, when I, when I took the ferry from England to France, it took like an hour. So it was one of those super high, hydra, uh, whatever. Um, it was fun. And I uh, zipped over, and then I was in Italy, and I was like, well, I'm going to hop over to Greece. It looks similar distance, the route I'm going to go. Uh, I'll get a ferry. It'll take an hour or two. I'll be over there. I hop on the ferry. I don't speak the language, so I didn't know. Once I was on the ferry, I found I kept going and going and going. And uh, after a few hours, I finally asked them. I was like, so are we almost there or what? And they, what are you talking about? This is a 24-hour, What? <laughs> <laughs> that was, and they were like, yeah, it was on all the signs. I was like, yeah, in Italian. The uh, 24 hours, and I remember just being like, oh, my goodness, a 24-hour voyage. is So three months, four months, whatever it is, uh, they travel. Like, that's just wearisome. And they show up in December in New England. Not a great time. Uh, it was a really, really big struggle. And, uh, but they kind of paved the initial way. And over the next 20 years or so, from 1620 to 1641, 21,000 Puritans made the trip from England to New England to uh, plant these new colonies, to begin to build, uh, to start. And, and really what they did, you know, especially initially, uh, the persecution factored into it more so later, but initially they really were going after this goal of wanting to establish a holy society based on what they viewed as true biblical precepts. And, and they really felt, you know, uh, I mean, you look at this, when the 100 passengers came over, the 102 passengers, 30 crew, they're like, all right, the 30 crew are sinners, but they're going to leave. Um, the 102 are all devoted Puritans. So in their minds, we're, we're leaving this church that has so many people that are not followers, and we're going to start a church where we're all committed to God. Where we're all, you know, so there was just kind of this idea that, oh, it'll be so nice. We're going to have this perfect church. And, and we're all, we're, the Bible is true. God's truth is God's truth. So when we read it and we study it, we're all going to come to the same conclusions and we'll be united. It doesn't happen. The, uh, it was actually one of the great shocks to the Puritans that you could get a group of devoted believers like that and still have tremendous differences in theology and understanding and interpretation. But, but that drama came later. They believed in a learned ministry. I had to put that in quotes because I don't normally say learned. Just wanted to clarify that. Uh, that they really felt the importance of the, there, there needed to be a pastor. There needed to be somebody that could teach from the word, but they needed to have studied the Bible. They needed to, to know the Bible, which to us 
and maybe this is a little bit of their lingering influence, to us seems kind of obvious, right? Like, of course, if you're going to stick someone up in front to teach from the Scripture, they should know from the Scripture. But as we've kind of heard in previous weeks, there were a lot of priests, there were a lot of religious leaders that had little to no knowledge of Scripture that were still in significant positions. And, and they might read from these books that gave them the, the appropriate prayers and, and rites and, and things to do, but they didn't necessarily understand it. And so uh, they would set up these churches, and they believed that God would provide a pastor within the body of believers gathered there, but they would look to find, you know, who is studying. Who, and if somebody wasn't ready, they would encourage it, pursue it. Get to that point so that you can be teaching, that you can be preaching, uh, that you can be leading us. Shock disagreements still happen. I already said that. They, they thought they were coming to kind of this religious heaven. And that wasn't the case. And, and it probably shouldn't be such a surprise. Uh, it, it's amazing to me sometimes to think about when we look at the New Testament, when we look at Paul's letters, and we stop and think for a moment, okay, what's going on? So these uh, Jewish people have become believers, which means for a lot of them, uh, they were cut off from family, they were cut off from business opportunities, they were cut off from work opportunities. Uh, some of them were hungry, they, they didn't have money, they, they were struggling, they were becoming homeless because of the decision to pursue Christ. Then uh, it becomes, it's against the law, so now they're being put to death. There was a point where, you know, they're being burned and fed the lions, and what does Paul keep writing to them over and over and over? Yeah, that stuff's bad. If you guys could just learn to get along, right? Like, that would be the really amazing thing. If we could, as a church, have unity. So this is a, this is a problem forever. But, but for the Puritans, with this hope and this ideal, this was a shocking thing to them, that they could still have differences of opinions. And, and part of the reason we have so many records about the Puritans is they were arguing with each other through letters. The different pastors, the different... So we have stuff documented that we might not have if it wasn't for them having differences of opinion and writing that and, and having these very forceful letters to one another. But uh, that's getting a little away from this, this theme of missions. That when the Puritans first came to the New World, one of their really key values, one of their goals, one of the reasons they said they wanted to come here was to reach the Native American, to reach the Indians. That was a priority for them. They saw this as a great missionary endeavor, that there was this new world full of people that knew nothing of God. And they had a little bit of an idealistic view that we're going to go, we're going to preach it, they're all going to come to know God, it's going to be incredible. Uh, But they still had this incredible goal. Um, and their approach, uh, I'm going to suggest, shaped modern missions in some ways uh, that they might not have realized at the time. But their approach was very different than a lot of other Christian groups at the time. John Winthrop uh, came over in one of the later voyages. Uh, he was the governor. But uh, on the way, he preached a sermon. I'm not going to read the whole thing because that would be... A lot. But uh, he was one of 
the founding members of the Massachusetts, uh, one of the founders of the Massachusetts Bay Company that came over, that set up uh, their company, that founded Boston. Uh, he was the governor for 12 of the 20 years, uh, first 20 years. Um, but on the voyage over, it was part of a group of ships traveling over together. Uh, he was on the Arbella. He gave a sermon to the passengers called A Model of Christian Charity. A model of Christian charity. And uh, we actually, we still have the notes. He, he wrote it down or somebody wrote it down afterwards. It was really long. Pastors apparently have always, Protestant pastors, we, we like to preach for long times. But uh, in this message, yeah, I don't even have time to read too much of this. Uh, in this message, he's challenging them that we are, we are going here to reach these people. That, that perhaps the reason God has given us this opportunity, the reason God has given us these ships, the reason God has put it on our hearts to go to the new world is not to found new companies, to get new wealth, to get new things, but so that almost kind of that for such a time as this mentality uh, from Esther, that that for such a time as this, we have been called to go and reach these people. And, and there was this Puritan ideal this value that for a lot of what they felt uh, because they put so much emphasis on the preaching of the word is that if you had the church and you had the preaching of the word happening in the way it was supposed to be that people would flock to it and they would come to know God as a result and so he said he's the one that initiated you know since then Kennedy Reagan different ones over the years have have quoted his line that they would be a city on the hill Right, that, and he kind of painted this picture of, you know, we are going to go and we're missionaries, not just on Sunday mornings, but through our whole lives, through our, our activities as businessmen, as we interact with each other. We will be the city on the hill, and he, he's taking that from Scripture, but, but he's going, they will see us and be drawn to God. That on the ship over, it kind of this powerful reminder of we are going to reach these Indians. This is a big part of what we're called to do. And uh, if there was any debate, even the Massachusetts Bay Company itself, uh, this is the seal of the Massachusetts Bay Company that they had. And, and uh, I don't know if you can see it, but, but the, they have an Indian in the middle of the seal. And he's got a bow, and he's got an arrow, but the arrow's pointed down to symbolize peace. You know, this idea of uh, we are going to reach them in peace. And then he's He's saying, the Indian, in the seal, uh, and it's kind of upside down, so I flipped that section of it, come over and help us. That even in the formation of this company and the chart, even in their seal, the most central thought was, we are called to go reach the Indians. We're called to reach these natives. And so they had this view that all of them were called to be missionaries, including the merchants. They viewed the new world as God's opportunity for mission. Uh, they believed, and this is another one of those things that perhaps because of their influence, but today we get the idea of unity of humanity, that, that all humanity is unified regardless of, of uh, ethnicity, of color, of language, or any of this stuff. But, 400 years ago, 500 years ago, there was very much this idea that 
different people groups had different values. And, and for the Puritans, they believed in a unity of humanity. We see that uh, in how when they incorporated their legislation, they included natives under it, which to us, we might not, it might not jump out so much, but they were essentially going, look, same laws apply to them as us. They were granted, there was just this mindset of they're the same as us. They have the same rights, they have the same laws, they have the same expectations. This wasn't happening in other places. That uh, even as they were working, uh, they would reach different uh, native groups and they would require young Indian men to build wigwams and start farms and, and wigwams, wigwams, whatever. Uh, the practice had been for the young single dudes that they would just bounce around from wigwam to wigwam. You know, wherever they could stay, they would stay. Uh, they had kind of this substance lifestyle where they weren't trying to get in. And uh, the Puritans were going, no, 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 that's not biblical value. You need to build your own home. You need to build your own farm. You need to start your own. And, and uh, so it was a little bit of them putting their values and their, you know, the way we do it is the right way. But it's also a recognition of, no, you're the same as us, right? So if this is what it takes to be a man, then this is what you need to do to be a man. Um, they challenged the natives. when they, they didn't just preach to them, but they taught them economic values. They taught them uh, rather to have kind of this subsistence living, to be farming, to be preparing, to be taking care of themselves in a more long-range way. All of these were unusual things to do with tribal groups that uh, for a lot of the population back then, there was a very serious question of, are these Indians even in the image of God? Like, are they even really people? Like, they kind of look like people, but we're the ones in the image of God. They're just kind of similar to us. Uh, which is a strange act. I remember being shocked when my family uh, moved to Bolivia to find out uh, where we lived in Bolivia, there were a lot of different primitive tribal groups that lived out in the jungles. They were inaccessible. And legally, up until within my lifetime, uh, it was they were still legally considered animals. If you were a farmer, you could kill them, and you were perfectly justified because they were an animal infringing on your farm. And uh, that now they've changed the laws since then in Bolivia. But, but I only say that to say this is kind of the common view 400, 500, 600 years ago, that these natives were kind of like animals. They're not in the image of God. It, our laws don't apply to them. We can do what we need to do to get what we want. And uh, the Puritans treated them very differently than others. Um. Now, their missionary endeavors at the time, they thought were disappointing. Because in the Puritans' expectation, all of the natives were going to convert. There was going to be this massive conversion. The church was going to be formed and birthed. And uh, they didn't see that. Now, looking back, with our understanding of of going into a completely different culture that has never had the scripture and, and learning the language and and trying to translate the scripture into that language, reaching them in their own language, which is another thing the Puritans did that was uh, validating their humanity, we get from today's perspective that actually 
their effectiveness was pretty incredible. That uh, For what they had and what they did, they reached an incredible number of natives. But in their mindset, it was disappointing. Uh, this is a painting of John Eliot, one of their uh, first and most famous missionaries preaching to the Indians. Uh, he, this guy, he actually founded 14 praying towns. He called them praying towns. Uh, and they were communities where uh, the Indians could come to live to pursue God. That, that they would literally kind of divest themselves of their pagan practices and immerse themselves in this community where they could pursue God, where they, they could pray. Where they could. And he founded 14 different, uh, over 1,100 Indians came to know God under his teaching and his leadership and founding these towns. Uh, now, they called them, this is not very PC, but the Puritans, you know, they thought we were the Puritans and these are the Red Puritans with their praying towns. Yes, a couple of you just made faces. I'm not saying go repeat that or call people that. I'm just saying that's what uh, they viewed it as. Now, John Eliot, as he's doing this, uh, he wrote once about the reason for these praying towns. A place must be found somewhat remote from the English. Now, this was kind of funny to me at first. He's like, wait, so we want them away from the British people? But already at this point, he's beginning to get frustrated of... We don't have the perfect town. we got sinners in our towns. Uh, there are negative influences in our colonies already. They have the pure in the church, but they have these negative influences. It's like we need to start these praying towns for these Indians that have become Christians away from the negative influences in the Puritan communities. So he says, uh, somewhat remote from the English, where they must have the word constantly taught, government constantly exercised, means of good subsistence provided, encouragements for the industrious, means of good structuring them in letters, uh, teaching them to read and write, uh, trades and labors as building, fishing, flax, and hemp dressing, planting orchards, etc. He's really advocating for this holistic approach. That we're going to affect every aspect of their life uh, in pursuing God. Uh, he was the first missionary in North America to really give the natives tools that still preserve their culture. Now, there were a lot of aspects of their culture that changed as these formed their towns and their churches, but he preserved their language. He created a written language for them. He translated the first book printed in North America was a Bible translated into their language by him. Uh, John Eliot through his approach, through seeing their humanity, through uh, seeing and uh, in, in going into their tribes and learning their language and translating the word. Uh, now, we can look back. There were a lot of things that maybe we know now were not great ways for doing missionary work. Um, we've learned those lessons. It doesn't make it okay back then, but, but we can see the areas where they progress. But John Eliot's influence uh, was heavily pronounced in uh, the development of Jonathan Edwards, who was kind of the catalyst for the Great Awakening. He would talk about John Eliot's influence in his approach. Well, John Edwards, Jonathan Edwards' writings uh, in the Great Awakening heavily, heavily influenced William Carey. He's actually the only person outside of the scripture that William Carey cites in his uh, writing, and he's considered the father of modern missions. Uh, so I read one 
writer who said, so it's kind of like the New England Puritans' practices and beliefs are a grandfather to modern missions, that they kind of helped start this uh, process of learning and developing and changing the approach to missions that ultimately resulted in uh, modern missions and, and a lot of our approaches today. So, holy cow, I just looked at the time. I shouldn't have done that. What? <laughs> I like you, Dave, uh, Debbie. Nobody else does right now, but I like it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Well, I really want to get into the halfway covenant more than Salem witch trial anyway, so we can skim that one a little bit. But the, the halfway covenant was a really fascinating moment in Puritan history. Uh, church membership, as I've already kind of mentioned, was an issue. That, that they knew it was impossible to have a perfect church, but they felt like it was their responsibility to do everything humanly possible to get as close to that perfect church as you could. And so church membership was this big deal to them. They wanted the visible church to be a closer approximation of the invisible church. Uh, we already kind of talked about how the Church of England, you're a citizen of England, you're a member. They, they had a problem with that. The New World was an opportunity for the visible church to be what God intends in their uh, attitude. So the requirements for membership in Puritan churches initially started off with uh, a profession of faith, subscription to the covenant. In other words, signing off on the church covenant. They would make a, a covenant, kind of like we ask people today that become members of our church to sign off on, yeah, I agree with our church bylaws and we'll be a part of that, right? Um, And good behavior. Because there was this recognition of, well, we kind of have to take people at their word if they say they're a Christian, but their actions should probably line up with what they say they are. So so they want to see, you know, do you have good behavior? Uh, Are you good behavior? Well, this was troubling to some Puritans because they're like, man, even... Even sinners who want nothing to do with God can have good behavior. Is that really a mark of, of saving faith? And so uh, they were kind of debating this. Well, church membership was also a big deal for everyone in the community because you know we tend to, to look at uh, when groups initially came over to America as trying to flee religious persecution so they could have religious freedom. But they kind of tended to initially, and the Puritans weren't the only ones to do this. This happened all up and down the coast. Baptists, Puritans, all these different groups uh, would come over, start their communities, and then make their practice, their church, the official church of that region. And so for Puritans... Uh, they were deeply linked with the government structure at the time. That freemanship, which is kind of a fancy word for citizen, uh, to be a freeman uh, meant you had the right to vote, to hold office in civil government. Uh, So if you were going to have any kind of voice in your local region, you had to be a freeman. Well, to be a freeman, you had to be a church member. Uh, Could you imagine today... If the right to vote, the right to hold office, any of that was all completely tied to whether or not you were the member of the right church. But that's what it was. 
and, uh, and even the churches themselves to be formed in the communities they had to be approved. So really, they had a monopoly on we're the official church of this area. You have no voice or authority or power or anything unless you're a member of the church. So, so on the one hand, there was this debate going on in the church of how do we purify our membership? But on the very practical side as well, there was very much a need for everyone in the community, for every man in the community, because they were the ones that were allowed to vote and, and have a I got to be a member of the church so that I can have freemanship. The struggle to find the perfect church led to a desire to confirm salvation because they kept going back to this frustration of, do we really know if someone is saved? Now, uh, before they had come to the U.S., uh, there was this guy, William Perkins, uh, who lived in the 1500s. He was a professor at Cambridge. Uh, he was a leader in the Puritan movement within the Church of England. He developed something called the morphology of conversion. <laughs> Just take all the fun out of conversion. <laughs> and kind of his belief was, uh, because they had, uh, Puritans were deeply Calvinistic. So they, they felt that people were predestined, that God chose, so they were predestined to salvation, but the moment they would become saved wasn't necessarily known. Right? So even though somebody was chosen, there would come a point in time where that decision would actually happen. And uh, so he felt, you know, he was very much convinced, and a lot of Puritans agreed with him, that there was a gradual process to this, that this could not just happen overnight. It was a very serious, a very weighty thing. I, I can't imagine how they wrestle with passages in Scripture where, you know, the man on the cross next to Christ converts in a moment and dies and is promised heaven. You know, the, you know, as I look at some of this, I go, how do they reconcile some of these passages where there were immediate conversions? But, but so he felt there was this morphology of conversion, that there was a process of viewable steps that could be identified by others. The first involved in attendance on the ministry of the Word. So the first was listening to the preaching of the Word. You've got you to hear it if you're going to act on it. Uh, this would result in... Knowing the law. In other words, knowing what is right or wrong. From knowing what's right or wrong, there would come a moment where you would understand, oh, I have sin. Right? To go from recognizing the sin in others to recognizing, I have sin. I have my own peculiar and proper sins, as he put it. What's a proper sin? I don't know. Uh, hundreds of you. So, Going from awareness of your own sin would be the fourth step where you began to be convicted of your sin, right? That then, uh, he comments, any person might experience these first four stages and not be converted. However, to the elect, those predestined to salvation, there was then granted a serious consideration of the promise of salvation propounded and published in the gospel. Now they're thinking about it. After which, step six, God would kindle a spark of faith in their hearts, that they would begin to develop faith. Kindling of faith was not the end of the process. Rather, quote, the soul must fight against doubt and despair by fervent, constant, and earnest invocation for pardon. 
So uh, now they're aware of the sin. They're starting to have faith. So they're begging and pleading with God for forgiveness. Uh, Any pagan can grieve sin because of a fear of hell. But to the regenerate, God granted an evangelical sorrow, a grief for sin because it is sin. So somehow the person who had become a Christian would not just be sad about their sin because of the punishment. They would be sad about their sin because it's sin. And you are supposed to be able to tell the difference looking at that person. Uh, After this grief, God gave a man grace to endeavor to obey his commandments by a new obedience. So now he has the grace to be able to begin to follow God. And finally, the Christian received an enduring, though often troubled, assurance of salvation. That finally, the tenth step was they finally, they had their assurance of salvation. But here's why it says often troubled assurance of salvation. The Puritans generally believed you can't be confident of anything. So anyone that was 100% confident they were saved, they were like, you are not saved. That was a clear indication that you were not saved. If you had a lot of doubt about your salvation, that was a clear indication you're saved. (laughs) Anyway, so they've got, now they've got this morphology and it's shaping part of the conversation that they're having of how do we work out membership because we know these stages are supposed to happen. And so uh, what we see happening in the New England church that did not happen in England is I'm starting to go, okay, we need to see it. So when you come in and as the, the pastor and the leaders of the church, when you would want membership and you would come to them and share your experience of salvation, you didn't just tell your faith story. You had to prove it. You had to come up with, here's the evidence that this happened. And here's when this happened. And here's when this happened in my life. And realistically, they didn't think, well, that, that can't happen fast. Can't happen when you're young. Like, to hit all these steps, you've got to be an older, wiser person because young people don't get what sin is, right? And so, as they're starting to shape this, they're going, you know, people had to be older to prove they were saved to become members. The uh, John Cotton's son wrote years later that the process for making somebody become a member was that the practice was for men orally to make confession of faith and a declaration of their experiences of a work of grace. That's a fancy way of saying they had to somehow prove this moment of a work of grace happening in their lives in the presence of the whole congregation. Initially, it started with just the pastor and the leaders. But then the rest of the congregation was going, hey, if we're all in the same family. We get to hear it too. So it, over time, it shifted to... If you want to become a member, you had to make a case and try to prove that you were a Christian in front of the whole church. In the presence of the whole congregation, having been examined and heard before uh, by the elders in private and then stood propounded in public for two or three weeks ordinarily. The only difference for women is they didn't have to do it in front of the whole church. They had to prove and do everything that the men did, uh, but they would stop at the step where they had done it with the uh, pastor and the elders in private, whereas the men had to then do it in front of the whole church. Uh, This led to problems because initially they could have nice-sized churches. Uh, They proved, you know, we're all good Christians. In fact, they kind of, the assumption initially was if you came over for England to be a part of this church, 
yeah, you love God. Like, clearly, that's why you made that horrible journey to be over here and be a part of this, right? And over that first 20 years or so, as 21,000 Puritans came over, there was a constant influx of new Puritans that met the uh, credibility. But there was this issue of, they believed in predestination, but what about those predestined who had not yet been saved? Well, what do they do about their membership? Because over time... The older people are getting older, but now the younger ones are coming up, and they're going, we, we think they're going to become Christians. Their parents are good Christians. Parents are good. Uh, they haven't, these young people haven't done anything to demonstrate that they don't follow God, but they haven't met the criteria of salvation yet. What do we do about them? Well, they didn't give them membership. And so the church membership started to shrink. Uh, other churches started to get mad at them. The, the non-Puritan churches, the Anglican churches started going, hey, you say we're so wrong, you reject our approach to church, you reject everything, but the only way you're building your membership is by stealing people from our churches. So you like to criticize us, but you also kind of like to grow your churches through our, through our outreach and our reaching the world. Um, they could really only build their churches through the work of these missions and other groups that they didn't recognize because the young people couldn't get to that place of salvation soon enough. Uh, this was a question posed to John Robinson, one of the pastors. It's really long and all sorts of crazy spelling. You can check it out later. But essentially they're going, hey, what happens first, the bird or the egg? Right? Like how, do you, do you start off with a church and then you fill it? Or do you start off with people that need to get saved and build a church from it? They're kind of going, look, you, you have set up a system where your church is just going to die. Because nobody can become saved. Because part of their struggle was that uh, if somebody didn't qualify as a visible saint, he was considered outside the church. He, he could come hear the sermon, but he couldn't be a member which meant he couldn't take communion, and it meant that his children could not be baptized. And this was a big deal. Because suddenly now they're starting to have young people that have grown up, that haven't proved their salvation yet, but now they have children. And what do you do about these children that they believe deeply needed to be baptized? This guy hasn't done anything wrong, so we can't kick him out of the church. But he's not saved yet either by our definitions, so what do they do about the children? In 1646, the civil government passed a law requiring church attendance to try maybe we can boost attendance if we require. And believe it or not, forced attendance of church did not result in a lot of great excitement for the message they were hearing. The people forced to come, actually, uh, a lot of them, uh, what we read in records is that uh, a lot of them were like, no, nah, we don't even like the preaching. We're, we're not happy to be here, and we don't like the preaching. Um, the children of these members grew to maturity without yet achieving faith, meeting the requirements, but without misconduct to justify expulsion. Uh, this was a real problem. Because what do they do? Because if, if they just decide, well, all right, we'll let the kid get baptized, but now... They've baptized a child of somebody they're not sure is saved. And when that person grows up, 
Are they then going to baptize their children because they haven't hit the age where they can be saved yet? But what do you do about those children? Like there was this fear of we're going to eventually end up with just a church full of people that are descendants of an actual church. And, And so they were really torn about it. So they, because now in 1657, it's been 30 years, 40 years, it's become enough of an issue that the churches are really shrinking. And so they had a meeting of the ministers in 1657 to kind of talk about what do we do about this, what do we do about this. And then in uh, 1662, they had a full-blown synod where they actually sat down and they passed some resolutions. They actually, they passed seven resolutions, but there's three that are important to us. The third proposition was this. The infant seed, why can't they just say babies? The infant seed of Confederate visible believers are members of the same church with their parents and when grown up are personally under the watch, discipline, and government of that church. So you go, okay, look, here's what we're going to say. From now on, if you're born to a church member, you're a member of the church. Fourth proposition. These adult persons, so talking about the children that are born to full members, when they grow up, they have this child membership, uh, which we actually have. We have youth memberships at our church. You know, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old can become a member of our church, but they can't vote in business meetings. Uh, There's certain things they can't do. Um, And actually, when they turn 18, we're supposed to sit down and go, hey, can we hear your faith story? Like, before we before we confirm this thing. Uh, so the fourth proposition was these adult persons, these, these child members who have grown up, are not therefore to be admitted to full communion merely because they are and continue members without such further qualifications as the word of God requireth thereunto, which is fancy lingo for, look, they don't just get to become full members because they turned 18. All right, They still have to meet the requirements of salvation. But then they had the fifth proposition, and this was the biggie. Church members who were admitted in minority, so these baby members, understanding the doctrine of faith, publicly professing their assent thereto. Okay, in other words, going, look, I can live by that. Publicly professing their assent thereto, not scandalous in life, so they're not uh, having a really wild lifestyle that conflicts with the church, Uh, And solemnly owning the covenant before the church, wherein they give up themselves and their children to the Lord and subject themselves to the government of Christ and the church, their children are to be baptized. Essentially, what they're saying is, look, if this kid member grows up and he goes, hey, I want to come to church. I'm on board with the church covenant. I can live by this. I don't have a crazy lifestyle. Any of this stuff. Essentially, they go, you can retain your child membership into adulthood. This means your children can be baptized, but you and your children are not allowed to take communion. It was essentially the halfway covenant. And the critics came up with that name halfway covenant because they were like, this is ridiculous. This is not okay. Uh, You know, this membership, this halfway membership could not vote in church affairs, could not participate in the Lord's Supper, but it could be disciplined by the church. And their children could be baptized. Uh, And so it was, 
it was criticized by those that, you know, the critics that felt that it should stay the way it was. But even them, their arguments, even they recognized they couldn't really come up with a valid argument because they recognized, they, look, nobody is supposed to be put out of the church unless they have done something dramatically sinful that requires church discipline. But you have these child members who have grown up, they've done nothing to justify being excommunicated. But they were still going but they're still supposed to lose their membership. And so their answer was, they've lost their membership. They just don't know when, and the church doesn't know when, but they've lost it. Like, it was a really weak argument. Well, this marks the end of a big phase for the Puritans. Because this halfway covenant did allow them to start seeing the churches build up again, that this membership thing was kind of resolved. It was a way to put at peace for some that, uh, all right, you know, there's going to be some full members. There's going to be some adults that, you know, if we're still following this morphology of salvation, that uh, they can still work their way through that process. Um, But it also kind of recognizes, the Puritans begin to recognize, all right, so maybe this idea of a perfectly pure church is not attainable, but we can still work towards those goals without losing everybody in the body. Uh, in 1667, Increase Mather, another famous pastor, supports Reverend Solomon Stoddard's practice of open communion, full membership without attempting to prove faith. It's starting to swing back to Look, if somebody says they're saved, why can't we just accept that? Right? If somebody says they are a believer, why are we going to make them prove it if we can't see anything in their life that contradicts it? It was starting to recognize God's the one that knows the hearts. We don't. And so you started to see Puritan churches swinging back to the way they were originally of if they say they're a believer and they agree to the covenant, and their lifestyle doesn't contradict it, they can be a full member. And by the 1700s, the Puritans had dismissed church membership restrictions that had begun in the 30s. It's 1010. I was going to talk about Salem Witch Trials. You probably never heard of it. (laughs) That is when their desire, there was a whole lot of things that played into it, spun wildly out of control over the course of a year. And that's really kind of when the Puritan movement, when the dust settled from that, lost a lot of its momentum and status. That's when already government was starting to move to go, you know what, we need to have churches and governments separated. We're becoming exactly what we left and criticized. And paving the way, ultimately, when we became an independent nation, to having a country that doesn't have a state church. I used up the question time. I'm going to close this in prayer. Uh, I'm going to, I'll upload these slides to the My Brandywine so you can check it out later if you want and see what was on there about the witches. But, yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn from the Puritans. We thank you. Uh, that you do continually keep working in our world and bringing about deeper and greater understanding of you, that you move in our hearts, that we can look back at the Reformation, but see ourselves in it as well. 
And God, just the incredible things that you did in that time that we are still learning from and growing from today. In Jesus' name, amen.